Thank you, Ed. Please uh, take your scriptures and turn with me to Matthew chapter twenty, chapter five. Not twenty-five yet. Just going to skip over twenty chapters. We're going to be looking at verses twenty-one through twenty-six this morning. In the spring of 1931, one of the most notorious criminals of that age was was captured. He was known as Two-Gun Crowley at the time, and he had brutally murdered uh, numerous people, including a police officer at the time. It's said that when he was finally captured in his girlfriend's apartment after a shootout, the police found in his breast pocket, a blood-spattered note that read this. Under my coat is a weary heart, but a kind one, one that would not do anybody any harm. Such obvious self-deceit and duality as Crowley's seen absolutely absurd to us, doesn't it? A cold-blooded killer on the outside with a kind heart on the inside. Yet that's the kind of duality that that we live in, isn't it? That's the kind of duality in our own hearts. And that's exactly what Jesus is putting his finger on this morning and through the rest of the chapter. Look with me at verse 21 in chapter 5. Jesus says, You have heard it said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you to be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Please pray with me. Father God, I pray that as I speak, you will teach your people. Use me, Lord, as your vessel, broken and cracked and weak as it is. Use me, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. The newspaper cartoon Peanuts was was uh, drawn by Charles Schultz for more than 50 years. In one strip, Lucy is talking to Charlie Brown, and Lucy says, I hate everything. I hate everybody. I hate the whole world. Charlie Brown says, but I thought you had inner peace. Lucy replies, I do have inner peace, but I have outer obnoxiousness. In a way, what Lucy is doing is putting her finger exactly on what Jesus is going to be talking to us about through the rest of the chapter. The disparity between our inside and our outside. 
the duality that we have between our heart and our actions. Here in, in this, in starting in verse 21 through the end of the chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, we have kind of a, a shift in, in Jesus' teaching here. He's going to teach us in the rest of chapter 5 on concerning six different laws, concerning murder and adultery and divorce and oaths and revenge and loving others. And although they seem kind of random, why is Jesus picking these? Jesus is actually teaching on fulfilling the great commandment. You remember when the Pharisees asked Jesus that day, what is the greatest commandment? You remember his answer. He said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul and with all your strength. And then he added, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And here Jesus is teaching us actually how to fulfill those on the inside as well as the outside. Notice first, he is teaching us how to love each other. All six of these commandments, all the six of these laws that he is going to expound on are all relational. They're all relational. They all have to deal with how we relate to each other. In marriage, in contracts, in disagreements, even how we interact with those who hate us. All those areas, Jesus is, going, is showing how we can truly love each other. But he's also showing us how to fulfill the greatest commandment here. If you remember last week, we talked about how we show our love to God by obeying his commands. That's, how, that's God's love language, obedience. Here he's teaching us how to obey him. But not just on the outside, how to obey him from the heart on the inside. How to love him, not just with, with our actions, but to love him with our motives, with the motivation of those actions. And not just with our hands, but with our hearts. How, he's showing us how to love him from our heart. And he does that by using a formula. He'll say it six times in the next six weeks. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Each one of these teachings, Jesus quotes an Old Testament law or a principle. And then on how to obey it, not just on the outside, but on the inside. You see, he's not giving us a new teaching here. But he's really giving us the true intention of the original law, of the original teaching. And so here, Jesus is not just giving us a new teaching regarding murder. He's giving us a deeper understanding of what he meant in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. You see, the law was always intended, always intended to deal with the heart. The Psalms show us that in spades. The Psalms, you go to the Psalms and you read things like David writing in Psalm 51 when he says, God, uh, sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart. Psalm 139, that wonderful psalm, ends with, with David writing, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. See, it was always about the inside. Even the, that, that right 
that was given to Abraham that of circumcision that was upheld in the law. That external rite of circumcision was to point to an inward circumcision of the heart in Deuteronomy 10 and Deuteronomy 30. And that's what Paul is explaining to the Roman church as he writes to them in the second chapter. He says, a man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely an external or outward or physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not the written code. You see, God is not, is not looking for an external show of religion. That's not what he is looking for. But he's looking for an internal change of your heart that is shown. And the fruit of that is shown in your actions. See, he just doesn't want external compliance. He wants true, godly heart motivation. And in Jesus' day, just as today, the focus is so much on the external, isn't it? We're always just looking at the external. When we give, we look at how much and how often. But God cares about the motivation. He cares about the attitude. As I read in 2 Corinthians, he wants a cheerful attitude. He wants a generous attitude. When we serve, we look at how and when, right? But God looks at the why. Why are you serving? Later on, Jesus is going to talk about things like loving our enemies and adultery and oaths. And we look at the external. But God cares about the internal motivations. And here with anger, we tend to look at our external outbursts, don't we? We, the swear, or the rant, or the punch, or, as here, the murder. But Jesus says that murder goes much, much deeper down in us. Murder goes deeper down. The root of that murder, the weed that has been left to grow in the heart of anger, that surfaces in the rant and the swear and the murder. And so he says, you've heard it said, people long ago, do not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. That's the law. He then goes on to say, but I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother is subject to judgment. You see, the outburst of murder is just a symptom of the inburst of anger. And that is the root that Jesus wants to pull in each of our hearts this morning. Jesus wants to get at the deep root of anger this morning with us. Of the Ten Commandments, this is the one most everyone can say, like the rich young ruler that day that came up to Jesus, we can all say, I've kept that command. I haven't murdered. Most of us can honestly say that. We have not murdered that they have loved God with all their heart in this way, I have not murdered. But most cannot honestly say that they have loved God with all their heart, that they have kept God number one in their life. Nor can we say we've never lied, never 
disrespected our parents or coveted. Murder is the one of the Ten Commandments where we can really stand before God and say, I have not murdered. I have kept this law perfectly. I have not sinned. But here Jesus is telling us that the sin of murder is actually deeper. It's the sin of anger. And those words just just shatter our self-righteousness, doesn't it? I remember 10 years ago, I was being discipled by uh, a mentor, Carl Bergman, and we were going through some material uh, called Sonship. And in one of the chapters, it asks you to go ask your wife if, you, if she thinks that you are an angry person. I thought I had this nailed. I, I ran home to Carrie and confidently strode up to her and sat her down and, and I said, Honey, do you think that I'm an angry person? Thinking she would jump in the conversation, say, oh, no, 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 of course not. No, that's silly. That's ridiculous. Where did you ever come up with such a thing? But she paused. And in that pause, I started my deeper exploration into my own anger. You see, we all live to some degree in this false pretense that we're righteous in our heart. We all think we can uphold the law both externally and internally, but we can't because the law searches out the heart. The law was intended to get to the heart because the root of the fruit of murder is anger. The fruit of anger is murder. And it is hidden deep, deep down in our hearts in the form of of little annoyances and frustrations. Like standing in the grocery line when it's slow. I was standing in the grocery line a couple weeks ago, you know, six feet apart, so the line seems much longer than it is. Have you experienced this? And there's two lanes open, and I saw this lane going faster, and so I I made a strategic move and, and moved over into the faster lane, and then as soon as I got into that faster lane, this one sped up. And you know how you, you chart your progress by the person that you were behind and, and that was behind you? And that person went through the line and I was still standing there. And I was started to seethe inside, get frustrated. Anger can show itself in, in that internal seething. Maybe you get behind a car that is going 10 miles an hour below the speed limit. For mile after mile after mile, and it builds up, doesn't it? Anger can show itself in bitterness that can develop over months or, or years. Anger can be passive, like a cold shoulder. Anger can be self-righteous defensiveness, can show itself in that way, when your character is attacked. Or anger can show itself in judgmentalism. And that's, that's what Jesus is getting at in verses 22 and 23. He says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, You fool, will be liable 
to the hell of fire. Here Jesus is not giving us a, a ladder of punishment of different angers. He's not doing that at all. He's simply showing us the seriousness of the sin of anger. And it comes out here, he says, he gives two examples in two forms. In insults. Some of your translations have there, if you call your brother Raka, that's the Aramaic there for insult him. And so you're calling your brother or sister empty-headed. More, more colloquially, you're calling them an idiot. You fool, in Greek, that word is moros. That's where we get our, our word moron from. It originally applied to one's character. And so judgmentalism is murdering somebody's intelligence or their character. And the conviction that Jesus brings here is that judgmentalism, that internal anger of judgmentalism, is, is actually a capital offense. And that angry, murderous heart is revealed both in our attitude towards the world and in our attitude within the church. As Christians, we, we love to judge the world, don't we? We love to sit in judgment over the direction the world is taking. There's a temptation that as the world acts and what it does and the direction it's going, we get angry as Christians, don't we? We allow that weed of anger to take root in our heart, don't we? We begin to think of the world as raka and morose, as, as idiotic and full of fools in the decisions it makes, in the way it accepts the, the creep of morality, in the way it, it, it treats unborn babies, in the way it accepts deviant sexual behavior, in the way it is so politically correct. Now, I want to be clear here. The world is making bad decisions. It is going in a bad direction. But we are called to separate that as Christians. We are called to hate the sin and not the sinner. And we have to, we have to be watchful that the weed of anger doesn't grow in our hearts towards the people that are in the world. We have to watch our own temptation towards spiritual pride and self-righteousness. That's the fruit of judgmentalism. We have to fight that temptation to stand in our, on our holy hill and wag our finger at the world, don't we? We have, to fate, we have to fight that temptation. It is our posture towards these actions that really will reflect Christ to the world that really, really will be attractive to the world. We also have to watch this judgmentalism within the church itself. We have to guard against this. It's a real danger that this, re, this weed of anger in our hearts could divide the church. It can divide the church right here, right now. As we begin to get back together again, as we begin to gather again, there's a real temptation here. There's a real danger here. Those who think that the corona crisis is, is way overblown, there's, there's, a, there's a portion of people that think that this is just a silly pandemic. I can't believe this. It's way overblown. This is a grand overreaction. That we're fearing almost nothing. 
If that is you, Scripture says, fight the temptation to think of your brothers and sisters who don't agree with you as raka and morose. You have to fight that temptation. You cannot smile at a brother or sister wearing a mask and seethe inside against them. But perhaps you're on the other side of the fence. Perhaps you're more cautious. Perhaps you look at the virus and you see its deadly effects. Perhaps you see it as as highly communicable. And you're worried about the second wave that's going to happen in the fall. If that's you, when we begin to gather back together again, you have to fight the temptation to internally murder your brother and sister who is more cavalier about it. You have to be careful not to let that weed of of anger start to grow in your heart when you see your brother and sister not wearing a mask. You cannot seethe underneath and smile at your brother and think that you are fulfilling the law. Sinclair Ferguson writes, for Jesus to kill with a knife or to engage in character assassination through anger or to belittle another by calling him a fool is part and parcel of the same spiritual sickness. And it leaves behind dead bodies. And so we have to pull pretty deeply at this root of anger. We have to pull pretty deeply. That's the third section of the sermon. We have to pull deeply at this root. So how do we work at this internal anger? How do we work at making our inside more like our smiling outside? Jesus ends by giving us two examples, if you notice, in our text today. He says, starting in verse 23, So if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand her over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you, you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Here Jesus, I think, through these two parables, is giving us the application of what he's saying. There are four ways to pull deeply at the root of anger. And the first is to understand that the responsibility of reconciliation is yours. The responsibility of reconciliation is yours. In other words, the reconciliation buck stops with you. The reconciliation buck always stops with you. As you read these two parables, the detail that stood out to me as I was reading and rereading this is both men are the ones in deficit. Did you catch that? The man worshiping suddenly remembers that a brother has something against him. He doesn't have something against the brother. The brother has something against him. In the second example... The brother is being taken to court by the other one who is angry with him. They both have anger directed at them. They're not the angry ones. Yet, 
Jesus shows that both are encouraged to make peace with that other brother. The buck stops with them. Now, we just don't naturally do that at all, do we? That is not how we naturally act. What comes naturally is waiting until that brother comes to me, right? I'm going to wait until that angry person comes to me. Or another thing that comes really naturally is he's angry with me. Your heart starts to become embittered, doesn't it? Anger starts to grow. That root of anger starts to grow in your own heart. What comes naturally to me is a monologue of self-righteousness. I don't know about you. I start, I start cataloging the ways in which I have been wronged. I am righteous. Enumerating those reasons. And when God calls us to go to him, what God says, the buck stops with you, many times what Cain said to God in Genesis 4 comes to mind, isn't it? Am I my brother's keeper? That's not my responsibility. But God calls us to be proactive peacemakers despite that situation. Romans 12.18 says, As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. In other words, keep your whiteboard clean. Clean it off. See, the reconciliation buck does stop with us. It means extending ourselves even when people don't. This means reaching out and offering that olive branch even when people don't accept it from your hand. It means going into the enemy's den just like Christ did. Brothers and sisters, that's, that's what the gospel is all about, isn't it? Jesus was the ultimate proactive peacemaker. He was not the one that was wrong, wronged. We wronged him, right? He had every right to wait for us to come to him. He was the righteous one. He didn't have to come. But he did. And that's the good news. That's the evangel. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. The good news is that in Christ, the reconciliation buck did stop with God. So Christ is the one who left the altar in heaven and came to us in the flesh. And he did what we could never do. He lived a perfect life underneath the law. He didn't sin in word, in thought, inside, or deed. That includes anger, brothers and sisters. Yes, we do see Jesus getting angry in Scripture, throwing the money changers out. But he was perfectly just in that, that righteous indignation, protecting God's honor and name. He was always focused on the sin 
and not hating the sinner. He was never judgmental. He was never defensive. In fact, when they came to accuse him and crucify him, do you remember what he did? Stood silent. So they nailed him to a cross. And through his suffering and his death, he took the punishment that we deserved for our sin. He suffered and died in our place. And he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering the power of sin and death, and completed the work that he was sent to do, reconciling man with God. And what these two parables show us is that we have the opportunity to actually be like our God. But secondly, they show us the importance of reconciliation. Not only does the buck stop with you, but Jesus highlights the absolutely critical nature of having right relationships, of rooting out that bitter root of anger in our heart. We see the man worshiping there. He's actually in the temple. He's, he's about to offer his, his offering. And he remembers that somebody has something against him. And Jesus says, leave worship, okay? Leave worship. That is huge for God to say. Leave worshiping me and go be reconciled with your brother. Settle the breach between you and your brother before settling the breach between me and you. That's pretty significant. He's putting a very high priority on settling any type of deep-seated anger. John MacArthur writes, regardless of who is responsible for breaking the relationship, we should determine to make a reconciliation before we come to worship God. He goes on to say, true worship is not enhanced by better music, better prayers, better architecture, or even better preaching. Better worship is enhanced by better relationships between those people that come and worship him. Do you want a better worship experience? I mean, that's what we all want, right? We want the best worship experience possible. Well, the buck stops with you. Be reconciled to your brother and sister. Thirdly, we see the urgency of reconciliation. In both cases, we see this urgency to root out this anger. One leaves worship. The other is encouraged to reconcile before they even get to court. Do it quick. Do it quick. Do it now is what we're hearing there. In other words, Jesus is is telling us, keep short accounts. You want to root out, you want to pull and tug at that root of anger you have in your heart? Keep short accounts. Ephesians 4.26 tells us, do not let the sun go down while you, while you are angry. Now, I think that some married couples I've heard you know, have used this for, for decades and decades. They don't allow themselves to go to bed until they're reconciled. I think that's wonderful in a literal working out of this verse. But I think the principle that God is saying here is keep short accounts. Don't let anger linger. Don't let anger build. Don't let the root get a hold down there. That's one of the benefits 
of communion that we are missing right now, brothers and sisters. We gather every week and we celebrate communion every week and it naturally allows, it naturally puts the buck in your court when he says, examine yourself before you take the elements. One of the, one of the applications there is within the body. Examine your hearts towards each other. Do you have anything against a brother or sister? Keep short accounts. Communion is a natural way God has provided to pull at the weed of anger. Lastly, we observe the danger of unreconciliation. I think Jesus is getting at the danger of unreconciliation. If you notice in verses 25 and 26, we're shown the result of harbored anger. The warning is, careful, you'll be turned over to the guard and put in prison, and there you're going to pay for that crime. What Jesus is doing is is giving us a peek at the result of an unweeded heart. He's giving us a peek at the result of an unweeded heart. A heart in which the weed of anger has been left to grow. And we get glimpses of unweeded hearts in Scripture, don't we? We see that Cain's anger led to a life of exile and wandering. Samson's landed him in prison. The elder brother in that parable that Jesus told in Luke was left standing alone outside the tent. And Absalom's bitterness led to his eventual death. Brothers, letting the weed of anger grow in your hearts unfettered is a dangerous thing. Theologian Frederick Buchner wrote this. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor the last toothsome morsel, both the pain you are giving and the pain you will receive. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Please pray with me. Father God, I thank you for your word. Spirit, change us by the power of that word in this area of anger. In Jesus' name, amen.